Well, good morning. So it's good to be back. Uh, had a good trip. We, uh, uh, a couple of the guys uh, and I on our motorcycles, we went southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, and uh, the criteria was um, non-straight roads, two-lane roads. And, uh, uh, and it was hot, not a drop of rain, but, uh, but it, it was a good trip, good trip. But it's always good to be back with you today. So I'll welcome you to our services today. Welcome those that are joining us online as well. You know, I thought maybe I, I would start off by just making a reference to uh, the title of our series of messages because... Thus far, I haven't said anything about that, but you see it on the screen, you see it on your bulletin cover, Sweeter Than Honey is what we've called this series. You'll remember that these messages are all a result of a recent prime time where we asked people, write down what your favorite passage of scripture in the Bible is and explain why that um, is your favorite passage. And... Uh, and when Kurt and I, you know, kind of kind of sorted through all that and came up with this six-part series, um, part of part of uh, all of that led to entitling the series "Sweeter Than Honey" because that is a phrase that comes straight from the Bible. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it's at the very bottom of the um, bear bottle there, that uh, honey bear that you see. It's Psalm 119, verse 103, and this is what it says. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The psalm writer was just talking about how God's word and God's word, not it's not that God's word is as sweet as honey. It's that God's word is sweeter than honey. And I thought since we're focused on on some of some of the sweetest passages of scripture according to a number of people here in the church I thought that would be an appropriate title for the series today is the fifth out of the five or out of the six part series this will be my last one in the series Kurt next Sunday will bring up the rear and and have the final message in the series so let's get into it what were you doing 27 years ago? Just kind of reflect on that. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I think that was right about the time I went from diapers to training pants, okay? You know, so some of you maybe you're thinking something along those lines. Others of you, you know, are thinking, oh, yeah, that, that was my 16th birthday or that was, you know, the year we got married or... If you do the math, I'm talking about 1994. What were you doing in 1994? I know what I was doing. I was rounding up people who were interested in being a part of a new church here in Shawnee. I mean, there were a number of things that happened that year, but that was like what I put at the top as far as one of the most notable things that I was doing. My wife and my sons and I, we moved here to Shawnee with the intention in mind of starting a brand new church. 
And I didn't know anyone that lived in Shawnee. And for that matter, I hardly knew anyone that lived in Johnson County. But yet this was the task, starting a brand new church. I use this phrase a number of times back in those days and a few since then. It's been quite a while since I've said it, but you know, I'll go ahead and, and uh, um, say it again, is that that particular period of time in my life, it was the scariest of times and at the very same time, the most exciting of times. It was the scariest of times because Colette and I, we had been living in Illinois and we had been a part of a church there that I had been serving at for 10 years. We loved the church. We loved the people in that church and they loved us. We had been there 10 years. We could easily have been there another 10 years. The church was growing. We were on the brink of expanding the size of the building. Uh, things were going pretty well, but I felt God was tugging to consider this, uh, stepping out of my comfort zone and doing something I'd never done before, and that is starting a, a brand new church. And that was pretty scary because the idea of leaving some of the security that we had here there to come here um, was like, what if this doesn't get up off the ground? What if this doesn't get started? Because, you know, the percentage rates of brand new churches, you know, that aren't mothered by a bigger church, um, the success rate isn't really high. And so it was kind of a risky thing. And at that particular point in time, I was in my 30s. I was 33 years old, old going on 34. And uh, so it, it was a pretty unnerving time. So that's why I say it was the scariest of times, but it was also the most exciting of times because, you know, I had been thinking for some time that, you know, during my years of ministry, at some point in time, I wanted to be in a situation where I was absolutely, totally in over my head, where the only way something was going to succeed was God was going to have to bail me out. And uh, this certainly qualified for that. And, uh, and it was exciting because I was able to see God doing some incredible things, you know, in the process of starting this church. So it was the scariest of times, and it was the most exciting of times. But like I said, one of the things I was doing 27 years ago was I was trying to recruit people to consider being a part of the core group of the church. We ended up with 18 adults. And uh, just FYI, um, of that number, there are still a number of people that are a part of this church. In addition to Colette and I still being here, there is Amanda Souter, which back in that time she was known as Amanda Plummer. There was Eric Snell. There was Vicki Morris. There was um, Vince and Barb Walk. And there was Ben and Don Clayton. You know, and those are all people that are still a part of this church, you know, and, and uh, so they, they were among some of the few that uh, were meeting in my living room every Wednesday night as we were ramping up to opening Sunday with this church. One of the things that I was tasked with doing that year as well was choosing a name for the church. This wasn't a small matter in my mind. I mean, sure, the thought crossed my mind, well, I could go the simple route and I could just call it First Christian Church, 
you know, or something along those lines. Um, although on my recent bike trip, I did see a couple churches that were second Baptist church or second, you know, Christian church. I don't really understand why, you know, those names are what they are. But uh, I thought, no, no, I want something that is more unique. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind based on the proximity of where it was we were starting a church in view of the greater Kansas City areas, I thought West Side. I thought, I thought West Side Christian Church, you know, is descriptive of where we'd be located. But it was during that same year that I heard about um, a church on Quivira called Quivira Road Baptist Church. It decided to change their name to West Side Family Church. So it was like, okay, I'll scratch that one off the list. And uh, I spent some time in the Yellow Pages, which, yeah, they're at one time used to be a thing called the Yellow Pages. And uh, I went down through that of all of, of the church names that were being used, and that was helping me to scratch some names off the list. And, and I ended up uh, deciding on a name. I decided on Crossroads. Crossroads Christian Church. And that wasn't kind of a lighthearted sort of a thing. That was something that I thought through uh, quite a bit. Because the name Crossroads has two words that make it up, cross and roads. And so speaking of cross, um, which is embedded in that name, it is central to the message of what it is that we teach and preach. Paul, in one of his writings, says, I determined to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that was the theme of his preaching was to talk about the cross. And, and I thought, man, how fitting is that? Because that is the theme of our teaching and preaching, not just in year one, but in year 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. You know, this, this needs to be central to the message. And so the word cross definitely fit. The other word is the word roads. And the reason that I felt like that was an appropriate uh, word to include in this is because in a very real sense, we are all in the process of being on a journey. We are all traveling somewhere. We're all headed somewhere. Now, it might be by chance or it might be something intentional that we're doing. But the goal, the task that we have as a church is to intersect people and to invite them to take a new direction in their life. And that was all part of my thinking back 27 years ago in why we settled on the name that we settled on, Crossroads Christian Church. And the reality of the matter is that, that that's not an invitation to take a new direction. That, that's not our invitation. That's his invitation. Let me show you a verse you may not be acquainted with. It's Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. So tucked away back in the prophets of the Old Testament, we read this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Man, what a great statement. And that was the message, you know, that Jeremiah the prophet had as he was speaking for God. 
And when it's talking about ancient paths, it's talking about God's way. Okay, look to the ancient paths. Look to what it is that God says. And if you will take that direction, you will take that path in your life, the end result will be rest for your souls. Now, I share that because it goes hand in hand with the favorite verse that is our focus today. The focus of our message today is based on something Jesus said recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where it says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it's an invitation that Jesus has given to come to him. And the end result of this is if we will do it, we will experience rest for our souls. Jesus isn't talking about just wanting to help us in some sort of a superficial way. Rather, he is addressing something that is much, much deeper. But before I go into breaking that down and explaining that, I want to allow uh, the gal that uh, at that prime time said this was her favorite passage of Scripture. Her name is Lynn Hargis. And if you haven't had a chance to get to meet Lynn, uh, you need to. But here is the way that she explains that passage. Hi, I'm Lynn Hargis, and I would like to share my favorite Bible verse with you. It's from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These verses became special to me back in 2010 when I was going through a really scary and difficult time. Uh, I was in the hospital because I had a major surgery. And I was in there for several days, and I still remember one of my nights in intensive care. I was having a really rough time because I was in a lot of pain from the surgery, and I had a lot of discomfort because of all the tubes that were in me. And we were still waiting to hear whether there was a malignancy my husband was with me, and he was reading from the Bible. And I remember crying when I heard him read these verses. And they weren't tears of despair. They were tears of relief because I just all of a sudden felt like a load had been lifted off of me, and just a feeling of peace came over me. I felt like Jesus was talking just to me with these words and that he knew everything I was going through and that he was promising me peace and letting me know that he was with, with me. I had read these verses other times and they had never affected me that way. Today, these verses still help me, especially when I feel overwhelmed or if I'm anxious about things. 
When he said the words, take my yoke upon you, he's telling us that he wants us to stop trying to do things on our own. And he wants us to let him direct us and guide us. And he promises that if we do that, we will find rest. I am thankful that hearing these verses at just the right time in my life made them so special to me. These verses helped me that night in the hospital, and they still are helping me today. And I hope that they will help you when you need them. All right, well expressed. I almost feel, you know, led to have a prayer in dismissing us, but you know better than that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Rest for your souls. You know, that, that, that is key. That whole passage is ramping up to that. Rest for your souls. That phrase sounds like music to our ears for multiple reasons. Just on the basis of the pace of life itself, uh, many people experience weariness. Some of you are right in the thick of that right now. Others of you look back over your shoulder, and not too long ago, you know you were right in the thick of it. We oftentimes idolize productiveness in this country, and probably other countries do the same thing to one degree or another. There's always another project to tackle. There's always another goal to accomplish. And when we become aware of it, we tack it on. We don't replace something in our life. We just add it to what is going on in our life. And, and we also have this tendency of comparing ourselves with others. And with some of the um, things regarding social media, it makes it all the more tempting and likely that we're going to be comparing ourselves with others. People, things like Facebook and stuff like that. You know, we look and we see people smiling. We see all the activities and what they're doing and stuff like that. And we start, you know, feeling like, um, wow, we have no choice but to up our game and to do more. Because they're doing more. And they seem to be happier. That's the appearance, you know, that is given. And so we feel, as a result, we need to step it up a bit, which, as time goes on, results, obviously, in fuller schedules. You know, if you have the old-fashioned calendar that's just hanging on the wall, the paper calendar, it gets fuller and fuller and fuller. Or if it's an electronic version, it gets fuller, fuller, and fuller. But the thing is that fuller schedules does not equate to fuller lives. And, and you've come to discover that. Many of you have, just because you're doing a lot of things, just because you got stuff going on every day and you've got multiple things for that matter going on every day, doesn't mean that your life is full. Doesn't mean that you are, have a sense or a feeling of being full. I don't know when the last time was that you heard a comparison of ours that we as Americans invest in our work compared to other countries. Some of you have heard some of this before, and I guess I'll refresh your memory. Others of you maybe have never heard this before, and for that, I apologize because you're going to hear it now. And it's going to plant, you know, perhaps some thoughts in your mind. Now, you know, a lot of the work that we do we don't, doesn't involve punching time clocks, although some of you might 
punch a time clock, but a lot of us don't punch a time clock, but I may use some of that terminology. The reality of the matter is we work more hours than most people in the world. Now, there are a couple of countries, Mexico being one of them and Greece being one of them, that the average employee there does work more hours than what an American employee does. But there's a whole slug of countries that don't put in near the number of hours that we do in their jobs. Japan, Spain, United Kingdom, Denmark, and multiple other ones. And the one that gets used most often when drawing contrasting comparisons is France. And so I tried to be thorough in in studying this, and what I found based on various recent studies is that the range is anywhere from 300 hours a year to 500 hours a year that the average American works more than the average, you know, employee in France. Now, saying three to 500 hours, I mean, what does that mean? Well, let's break that down um, and think about a 40-hour work week. Let's just use that kind of as a measurement. What that means is that here in America, people work eight to 12 weeks more, more time punching the time clock than a person in France does. Okay, so I mean, that's, that's up to three months. Germany isn't that much different. In Germany, um, Comparing them with Americans, we work 420 hours a year more, which broken down means that we punch the time clock 10 and a half weeks more than what a person in Germany does. It kind of makes you feel a little bit exhausted hearing that, right? Um, yeah, uh, I know, I know, you know how that works. And all of that isn't even talking about some of the additional things outside of work that we end up squeezing into our schedules. Things like recreational, entertainment, hobbies, you know, running our kids here and there, attending our kids' events or our grandkids' events. I mean, all of that stuff kind of gets squeezed in on top of the time that we're punching the time clock as far as our work goes. I don't know who said this, but uh, it, it is true. Doing more than ever before, but enjoying it less. And that is a phrase that uh, a lot of people experience firsthand in their life. That they're doing more right now than ever before in their life, but that doesn't also mean that, that their enjoyment in life has increased, you know, proportionally as well. But as a matter of fact, it may be just the opposite. They're enjoying it less than ever. Years ago, Time Magazine devoted an entire issue, you know, with the theme, Stress, the Epidemic of the 80s. An entire episode was, or episode, uh, issue was devoted to that. You know, the, the epidemic of the 80s. And it's almost laughable to hear that because we know that that in no way was limited to the 80s because it continued to ramp up in the 90s and, and in, in the 2000s. 
it hasn't let up any. It's, it's kind of like um, the old comedy shows, you know, about spinning plates. And I think some of the circuses still do this sort of thing. It's the idea of this man or this woman that, you know, has these poles and starts spinning a plate on a pole and then spinning a plate on another pole. And they do that and they got like 10 poles and 10 plates that are spinning. And, and they, the ones that start winding down, slowing down, you know, start getting real wobbly. So they got to speed them up again. And then they add five, 10 more you know, plates. And so they've got like 20 or 25 plates around them. And about the time they're giving attention to this one, that one over there is just about ready to fall off. And they rush over and they get that one going again in addition to another one. And then they rush back over to another one. And that's kind of the way that our lives sometimes feel is that we're just trying to keep up. We're spinning so many plates. We're trying to do so many different things. And like I said, every time we add something, it's not like we subtract something. We're just adding it to what is already there. And so our lives get, get our calendars anyway, get fuller and fuller, busier and busier. And it's in the middle of all of that that, uh, and this was a verse that I read Psalm 46 in my devotional time just this week. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. And boy, that's a good reminder in the Bible. The whole idea of being still means cease, put the brakes on. I like the way the message translation reads here. It says, step out of the traffic, take a long, loving look at me. And the reality is that, that in many respects, we are all caught up in the traffic, going, 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 going. But what the Bible is telling us is that sometimes we just need to kind of pull off to the side of the road so our soul can be refreshed and refocused. And that's part of what times like this are all about. you know. But it shouldn't be limited to just an hour or hour and a half in a 168-hour week. Well, back to our main text. This is what Jesus was inviting people to do. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, what Jesus is doing in that passage is he is offering himself as the solution to all that burdens us. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, whatever it is that's burdening you, the simplicity of his promise is refreshing. Whatever it is that's causing you distress, he can help you with that. And that's the promise that he's giving in this passage. So it might be weariness that's tied to your schedule, which is what we just talked about, involving work and all the other activities that you try to squeeze into your life. On the outside, people may look at you and they may think that, wow, your life looks full. Boy, you, you've got things going all the time. You are an important person you are really living the life. And that's what it may look like on the outside, but the reality of the matter 
sometimes is completely the opposite. Full lives in appearance on the outside, but empty on the inside. And the whole point Jesus is making in this passage is I can help you with that. But then again, maybe with you, the issue contributing to weariness doesn't so much have to do with your schedule. It may have more to do with some of the life choices that you have made in the past. Life choices that you regret today, kind of like a ball and chain that you've been dragging around with you for who knows how long. You know, I'm thinking of this guy. Jesus told a parable uh, about, and we call him the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And the way that story begins is with these words. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the property. So the father divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son gathered his possessions and left for a country far away from home. There he wasted everything he had on a wild lifestyle. You see, this younger son kind of had a rebellious spirit, and he felt like he knew better than his dad. Whatever kind of rules and and everything that he lived under, underneath his dad's roof, you know, he was basically sick and tired of that, and he knew he could make better choices and that his life would be a better life if he would get out from underneath that. And so that's why early on he demanded his share of the inheritance, and his dad ended up giving it to him. But uh, that didn't go so well, as that last sentence says. He wasted everything he had on a wild lifestyle. And so things were beginning to change. And uh, um, he ends up hiring himself out, feeding pigs, which remember in the context, this is a story being told in a Jewish context. And pigs were unclean animals. Not only were you not supposed to eat them, but you were not supposed to even come into contact with them. But yet this is the job that he hired himself out feeding pigs. And then on top of that, he was envious of what it was that the pigs were eating. That's just another way of saying that he was, he was in the gutter. That his decisions, which he thought he knew best beyond what his dad thought, you know, ended him in a bad place, in a bad way. But then he came to his senses. Verse 17 in the text says, when he came to his senses, he started thinking about, oh, it's so much better back home. I need to go and plead for forgiveness and just ask to live in the servants' quarters, and it'll be a whole lot better than this. Yeah, the thing is, we don't know how long that took for him to get to that point. Because Jesus, in the telling of the parable, he doesn't give us any measurement of time. So how long was it that he was living in the excesses of life in this wild lifestyle, you know, and then he was flat out broke and he hired himself out, you know, feeding pigs? We don't know how much time passed. Was it a matter of days, weeks? Could it have been months or even years? It's very possible. He probably went through an extended time of weariness, But the good news is, eventually, he did the right thing, and he went back home, which obviously was the right thing. 
So whether it be because of your schedule and the number of hours you're working and all the other things you're trying to squeeze into your calendar, into your schedule, and that is contributing to the weariness, or whether it be because of some poor choices that you've made in the past and you're living today with the regrets of those, and there's hardly a day that goes by that, that you don't wake up and you're regretting that you did what you did X number of months or X number of years ago. Well, let me add another possibility to all of this. I want you to see what Paul experienced when he was trying to rendezvous with a couple of Christian friends in Athens, Greece. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. It was almost as though every street corner had an altar, had a shrine, had, had an idol on it. To absolutely every known God that uh, the people of Athens ever heard about, they erected something, you know, to them. And so then Paul ended up with an opportunity to talk to some of the people of Athens, and this is what we read. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. What Paul was going to do was he was going to use that as his opening to be able to share the gospel message. That among all of these altars and idols all over the place, he found this one that had kind of a label or a plaque on it that said to an unknown God, and he thought, there's my opening, and I'm going to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He decided that that was going to be what he was going to share. Now, the question, though, that I have is, what would cause people to do that? What would cause people, the people in Athens in this case, what would cause them to, every time they heard about a so-called God that existed somewhere in the world, they erected a shrine, they erected an idol and an altar to that, to the point that Athens was just covered. And Athens was not a small city back in that time. It was covered with all of these religious shrines all over the place. Think about it. What would cause them to do that? They were so unsure of themselves and where things stood spiritually that they were willing to go the extra mile. And boy, they did go the extra mile. They were just trying to cover all the bases just in case this one so-called God that they heard about really was a God, let's do something about it because we do, do not want to uh, insult that God. And then the same thing about another God, that so-called God or idol that they heard about, they erected something else. And that involved the whole city was in on doing this. But the same sort of thing can happen with individuals. Think about the weariness. Think about the burden that people experience that are trying to cover all of the bases because they want to try to ensure that they're in good standing with whatever deity is out there and whatever it is that he 
is expecting. Never knowing for sure if you've done enough, so you're always having to do more to kind of safeguard that you do not offend a so-called God. Never knowing for sure where you stood in regards to the afterlife. Can you imagine approaching life like that? How weary that would make you? Yeah, because you would never have peace in knowing that you were in a good relationship with the creator of the universe. You would never have that because you'd be thinking, maybe I haven't become aware of the creator yet. And so you would still continue to deal with that anxiety. You see, the list of contributing causes to weariness actually can be a long list. Whether it be all of the stuff you're trying to jam-pack in your calendar, your hectic schedule, whether it be the guilt that you're dragging around of bad decisions you've made in the past, kind of like a ball and chain, whether it be the painful uncertainty in regards to where you stand with God. And it can include what Lynn was talking about in the video. It can talk about trials and hardships, suffering, difficult times. Yeah, that's valid. That can cause weariness, deep-seated weariness. Think about what Job went through in the Bible with his extended illness and having lost so much in his life, but on top of everything else, losing his health as well. Think about Paul with the thorn in the flesh that he had, which we don't know exactly what that entailed, but we know it was painful, and he prayed about it, and he prayed about it, and he prayed about it multiple times, but God was like, nope, not going to remove that from you. Yeah, all of that kind of stuff can contribute to weariness. Jesus said this the night before he was arrested in John 16. He says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And so the question that I've got for you today, whether you're here in this room, whether you're online listening to this on a Sunday morning or at some other time, you're listening to this. The question that I have for you today is, are you weary? Because that's who Jesus is talking to at the tail end of Matthew chapter 11. Are you weary? And if so, then Jesus has an invitation for you. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me you will find rest for your souls. You see, the solution ultimately, the solution ultimately to weariness is not a pill. The ultimate solution to weariness is not a stress reduction plan. The ultimate solution to weariness is not a time management course. The ultimate solution to weariness is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. We need to understand that in a first century context. Don't just try to look at it from a 21st century because some of us, you know, haven't dealt with yokes 
and uh, and some of us haven't even been on farms. So so uh, let's look at this from the perspective of the way people heard it when he was speaking to them. A yoke was made of wood. It was something that was hand carved to fit the neck and shoulders of an animal in order to prevent pain and discomfort in their work. It was a single piece of wood used to kind of bring together two animals, usually oxen. It was customary to use one animal, one oxen, that was a seasoned oxen, the ox that had been around for a while, and then the other one would be a young one. The young one would be able to learn from the older one. But the end result of what the purpose of all of this was, was to lighten the workload. That's what a yoke was all about. So what Jesus is saying in this passage is that he's saying that he wants to come alongside and he wants to help us. Whatever the burden is that we're experiencing in our life, and we've talked about several this morning, whatever the burden is, he wants to be there to help carry the load. You don't have to struggle alone. That's the point that he's driving home. That ball and chain of guilt that you've been dragging around, you don't have to drag that around anymore. The uncertainty of where exactly you stand in view of eternity, you don't have to lose any more sleep about that. Those trials that are wrecking havoc in your life, he wants to come alongside you and help you with that. He wants to be there to help provide the strength that's needed to carry the load. You don't have to struggle alone. Rest for your souls. I mean, that's the bottom line of what we were reading in uh, Matthew chapter 11, coming from Jesus, the invitation to rely upon him. Let's not make the mistake of treating what we have in Christ as being kind of the equivalent of a get out of jail card. You know, you, you know, how many of you have played Monopoly before? Okay, most people in here have played Monopoly, and, and I, I can't remember offhand. It's probably both chance and community chest. Do they both have get-out-of-jail cards? It kind of seems like there is one of those cards in each of those stacks. But when you're playing that game and you get a get-out-of-jail card, you know, what do you do with it? Well, if you're not in jail, it's not like you really need it at that moment, right? So what do you do with it? You tuck it under some of your cash or some of your real estate cards or under your side of the board game, the cardboard. You know, it's not something that you need, but you put it there for when you will need it. And then eventually that time is going to come that you're going to get a community chest that says, go straight to jail. If you advance, go. Do not collect $200. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, yeah, I got to get out of jail card. And you pull the get out of jail card out and say, aha, presto changeo, I'm out of jail now. And so it came in handy at that moment. But otherwise, I mean, you acquired it sometime earlier in the game, but you really didn't need it. So you just tucked it away for safekeeping until you do need it. 
Unfortunately, that is the way some people treat this whole connection with Jesus Christ. You know, this whole thing in faith of embracing our Lord, knowing full well that it is going to save you, you know, from eternal judgment. It is going to open the door of heaven. But you don't need that right now. And so you kind of get this salvation from the Lord, and it's like, this is going to come handy eventually, but I'm going to tuck it away right now because I got my life to live. And then you go about living your life, and then when that time comes, whether it be a terminal illness or a major accident or, or whatever, then all of a sudden, oh, but wait, I've got this, and I can get, get into heaven. Don't make the mistake of treating what we have in Christ as simply a get-out-of-jail card. Because the reality of the matter is, Jesus offers so much more. And that's what Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30 are talking about. It's the so much more part. That he can help you in the living of your life, day in, and day out on this side of eternity. He can bring that blessing into your life where you don't have to struggle and you can experience that inner peace, that rest for your soul. Yeah, it's a little wonder Lynn picked that passage. It's jam-packed with meaning. We're going to enter into our time of communion, and I want to encourage you to reflect on that today. When you take the bread in a moment and you eat it and the cup and you drink it, I want you to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember the price that he paid to make it possible for you to have an eternal home in heaven on the horizon waiting for you. But I also want you to think about the words that he spoke in Matthew chapter 11. That he wants you to come to him now. He wants you to rely upon him now so that you're able to experience life on a different level than what you would otherwise. Yeah. He's not just concerned about your eternity. He's concerned about your present right now as well. So let's pray and reflect on that today. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to open your word and to look and to see something that speaks to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we truly are being receptive to what is being spoken here. And allowing the Spirit to take these words and to bring comfort and reassurance and peace into our life. Quite frankly, right now, some who are listening are in the middle of some turmoil of one type or another. And they need, they need to have open ears and open hearts to receive what it is Jesus said in Matthew 11. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit will use that to minister to them. Thank you, Lord, for doing for us what we needed most. 
so that it could impact our lives and it could make a difference in our eternities. We celebrate that today. We celebrate your love. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.